Okay, tonight we are looking at uh, chapter three, and we, we've said before, I'll throw this up there real quick, the big picture that we're looking here in Daniel in the old time is just Daniel is in, the, is in a time period where um, he's in captivity. The captivity had been promised because Israel had totally departed from the Lord and Judah, Israel first and then Judah. And so now there's a period of 70 years of captivity that's going to be happening. Daniel is there the entire time. And we're reading from the book that Daniel then wrote about some of the things that happened during this 70-year uh, experience. Obviously, it's not everything. Um, he didn't record a history of the 70 years. But what we, all, what we do have is what God wants us to know about those particular times. With well, the ultimate being that we are right here. Everything pointed to Christ, and it's all about putting the message of the gospel out into the world. And so tonight, we'll simply do a quick reminder of the uh, chapters that we have covered since last week was the gospel meeting, and then we'll go right into chapter 3. And I will use the syllabus as a reminder. <laughs> In chapter 1, back on the uh, 11th of October, we, well, we talked about who Daniel was and where he fit into the timeline. Then in chapter 1, we got into the fact that God provided for Daniel and his, free, and his three friends as they faced the very first test. And that test was they were not to defile themselves with the king's food. Very good. And then we got into chapter 2 where Daniel, or God provides Daniel the ability to reveal and interpret Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And uh, upon that interpretation that God blessed them with, uh, he was promoted, and then he also took, looked out for his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they were likewise put in a position of authority of somehow in the uh, Babylonian province, which then brings us to where we are tonight in chapter 3. And I think I put on here, chapter 3 there, I said, God rescues Daniel's three friends who refused to bow to Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And the other way to say this is, golden image in the fiery furnace. <laughs> so different ways of talking about the exact same thing that happens here in Daniel chapter 3. There will be uh, th six sections that we'll be going through tonight. You'll see the first three right here. If you take a look at the book or the, this chapter and break it down, it really is, is, is broken down very easily. The fact that we're going to read about Nebuchadnezzar setting up this golden image and requiring people who come there to worship it. And then we're going to study about how the three Hebrews, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, um, refused to bow to this particular image. And then the consequence of not bowing is in the next uh, four verses. Then we'll talk about how God delivered them. And then in the end, we'll see that God is glorified for the mercy that he showed and the power that he expressed, not in this chapter, by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and I'm sure they were very thankful and glorified him, but in particular, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And then again, we see that I guess the career path is to be tested and then you're promoted again. So then we'll see that he is, they are now promoted. So big picture wise, the third chapter of Daniel continues the, the theme of the conflict between pagan rulers, the world powers, and God's saints. We're going to see more about that even as we get later into the chapters. Chapter 7 talks about the great and evil beast will basically wear out or persecute the saints of the Most High. 
And that's what Satan is all about. He's all about trying to wear us down, to wear us out, whether it's people like Daniel, people like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or it's you and me. It's all about wearing us out and trying to pull us away from God. And the, this principle is certainly at work when we look at chapter 3. If I were to summarize all of chapter 3, we would see that the focus of this particular conflict that we're going to look at tonight between good and evil is all about this large golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar sets up near Babylon in the, in the, in the province out there. And when the image is finished that he created, that he's now going to worship, which God just makes fun of those kind of people all the time, doesn't he? You created something out of wood and now you're going to worship it? He does the same thing. But he invites all the officials in the area to come to its dedication. And upon arriving there, I'm assuming upon arriving, they learn that they are going to have to bow to this image when they hear the orchestra or all the musical instruments playing. And if you do not bow, you will cast into the middle of the fiery, burning, burnt furnace within the same hour. Thank you for coming. <laughs> do I have your attention now, he says to the people there. And obviously, everyone heard this decree, including Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the question is, what are they going to do? I mean, they're in their dedication best. They're ready. So now, what are they going to do? The easy thing is to give in. tough thing is to stand up. And that's what we're going to see. And so the music plays, and the people bow just like they're supposed to bow. Now, I would imagine most of these folks are just going through the emotions. I mean, this is a poly, polytheistic a society. Any God is a God we worship. I mean, you got your gods, I got my gods. We'll just all bow to everybody's gods. And so worshiping to something like this and bowing to something may not have even been on the minds of anybody. Okay, big deal, I'll just do it. But it was on the minds of these three Jewish captors. And they were the ones who objected to this. And they didn't raise a cane about it. Um, we just find out that they're eventually told on by tattletales. The tattletales were the Chaldeans. And we'll talk about them in a little bit. But when they did this, they, pro they courageously proclaimed to the king, to his face, that I'm not going to bow down to your image and I'm not going to serve your gods. And that's it. It's plain and simple. No more discussion. So when a fit of anger, he had him bound. He threw him into the fiery furnace. I'm sure he expected them to burn in a literal crisp in a matter of almost instantaneously as far as the, as high as the fiery furnace was. But to his surprise, he not only saw them alive, he saw a fourth being in there walking around with them, which totally confused him. So he calls them out of the furnace, realizing that nothing's no harm had been done to them. And as a result of that, he blesses the God of the three Hebrews and made a decree that if anyone spoke evil against your God, then he's going to inflict his most favorite punishment. You know what that is, right? I'm going to tear your limbs off. And I'm going to burn your house down or take your house down to rubble, not necessarily burn it. So let's just break down. And as a result of that, we see that he's going to promote the three Jews. So if you had to go, what did you learn tonight in two minutes? That's the synopsis of chapter three. And then we'll get into some applications as well or some lessons. But when we circle back and look at chapter three, verses one through seven, we see Nebuchadnezzar is setting up this image. 
And it was a large image. Now, this just was not an image that he made that he could move around from table to table within his house or at a temple. You see a lot of pictures of temples of, uh, art, of idols that are made that are set up on a, a little stand or something, and then they have to bow down and worship. No, this guy's big. He's 90 feet tall, sitting on a base of about nine feet wide. So in essence, he is a nine-story high image. That's big. <laughs> That's tall. And when he builds this, he says, okay, it's time to invite everybody to the ceremony. And so everybody arrives at the ceremony, those that he invited, that is. And who does he invite? He invites all the government officials that are at least in certain categories of government officials. And when they arrive there, they heard the royal Herod announce that there's going to be an orchestra playing, in essence. Lots of different musical instruments. And when you hear this music, you are to bow immediately before this great golden image. And if you dare to ignore this command, then you will suffer immediate death by being burned alive in a furnace. And that's exactly what happened. At first, it appeared the whole crowd did exactly what the king commanded. But as we'll see, it was clear that three people said, no, no way, not ever, not now, we're not going to do that. They would rather die by fire than disobey God. So if you look at the, the details of verse 1, it never does mention that there is the, what the particular timing of this event is. We don't know what it is. It just doesn't say. Some people have speculated. Uh, probably the most speculation centers around somewhere about 18, 19, 20 years after the events of chapter 2. To be honest with you, I don't even know how they come up with that speculation because other people said it was 50 years later. <laughs> and in the end... It really doesn't matter. No one really knows. But as we said, this image was just not something that you would carry around with you, hold it under your, hold it under your uh, arms and just say, hey, here's my image. This was something that was big. It would be like, you know, a lighthouse. It would be something that's so massive that everybody could see it. Everybody knows what this guy's been doing, and we're going to do our best to honor him. And then when we skip down to verses 2 and 3, we see a description of everybody came. These are all the prominent officials in the government. They were invited to the state function. They were all honored dignitaries. And we find out that they're just not there. They're at the base of this image. And they're there at the base of this image to listen to King Nebuchadnezzar glorify this great image that he had built and to deify it, I guess, in some way, and make sure that special honor was given to the sinners, to this particular image. And he mentions the type of people that were there. There were princesses, and there were governors, captains, and judges, and treasurers, and counselors, sheriffs, and rulers of the provinces, which would include Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, okay? And then in verses 4 and 5, when we read down there, we see that the king then, or the herald then, made this public announcement to all the people, nations, and languages who were there that could listen to him. Remember, Babylon had conquered a lot of people. There are a lot of different people there from all kinds of nations that spoke very different languages. But they were all trained like these captive Hebrews were in the Chaldean language. But he said, everybody who's here, I don't care where you're from, Listen to what I'm telling you. And he tells them that how they're going to have to worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And that's what this was really all about. Really praising Nebuchadnezzar, I think, deep down. You know, look what I've done. I've built this image. 
And if you don't fall down, verse 6, you're going to go in the middle of a burning furnace. Now, as I mentioned before, if you're poly, polytheistic, who cares? This is just another God. I'll bow down to him. I don't have no, no skin off my back. But that's not the case when you believe there is one God and one God only. And so the only choice is, do I give in or I stand up, literally in this case. <laughs> and that's what they're going to end up doing. So Nebuchadnezzar, he's not playing games. You either do what I say or you're going to be burned to death. And it also suggests that there was not going to be a hearing about it. There was not going to be some kind of discussion we'll do later. No, he was judge, executioner, jury, or whatever that statement is. It was going to happen somewhere in there. I think I got that mixed up. Some, this was going to happen within the hour, within the same hour. If you don't do this, you're going to die. So the, the, the stage is set, and there's a battle that's going to happen now. And you might ask, why a burning furnace? What did he just build? An image made of what? Gold. So you're going to have to have a big fire that smelts all that gold, maybe even makes all the bricks. So that may be speculation as to why he chose that, because burning people to death was not the chosen method of kings at that particular time. So that may be an interesting reason why he used this particular device. Um, but when we arrive at verse 7, we see exactly how the people reacted. The music played, they fell down, worshipped the golden image. In other words, everybody did exactly as they were commanded to. And at, in the text, we see no mention of any exception to the rule up through verse 7. But then we move into verse 8. And then the next section, verses 8 through 18, we find out about the exceptions. And there were three exceptions. And who turned them in? Well, it didn't take long for the word to make it to the king that there were three Jews who disobeyed the king's instruction. And just as it normally does, and as we've experienced through life, there were three little jealous informants who hurried off to try to tattletale on it exactly what was going on. And I think there was a reason they did that. And so the king was outraged when he heard it. Disobedience to a monarch was not going to be the rule of law that day. He was going to take care of business. And when they were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, it seems, according to verse 15, that they were given another chance to change their mind. But they immediately turned down the offer. And now, having been put on the spot, they made their decision to be faithful to God. And it's their courageous words that indicate the resolve that they had and that this was no accident. This was a firm decision that they made. And again, if you think about this, this is happening fast, but was it really that fast? I mean, they've been trained, their whole, these people have been trained their whole life to honor nothing but God. So it really, in my mind, wasn't a major decision that they had to make. This is just a natural decision. But they are being put on the spot. They served a God who was able to save them from the flames of Nebuchadnezzar's furnace. That's what they told him. And furthermore, they said, even if he decided not to deliver us, it doesn't matter. We're still going to worship and serve God, 
in God only. And if they must die, then they must die. But the king had to know they would never bow to his golden image and they were never going to worship and serve his gods. And undoubtedly, this is one of the most greatest moments in biblical history. Our kids know this. We know this. In the biblical silence years when the Maccabeans were doing their revolt against the kings, they even referenced the strength of Daniel, I mean of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in standing up to the enemies of the Israelites at that particular time. Again, and when you look at verse 8, it almost sounds like the crowd was so large that they didn't even know what was going on. Nobody noticed these three had not bowed down. Uh, matter of fact, I doubt the king probably even would even consider that there would be anybody with the audacity to even ignore the orders that he gave, would you? Everybody's going to obey me. I mean, it'd be foolish. Who would want to go say, I'm going to die in a furnace? But there are always those who want to take advantage of the situation, and the Chaldeans were the ones at this particular time who were all set to take advantage of the situations. Remember, they were the ones who were embarrassed by these Jews and by Daniel in chapter 2 when they told Nebuchadnezzar, uh, we can't tell you what your dream was. And then Daniel came in with God's help and revealed the dream and the interpretation and then had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego promoted. It's the same group of people who are now complaining about these guys. They had no love loss for the Jews in particular. And then as these Chaldeans, when they approached the king in verses 9 through 11, they just said, you know, the, O king, live forever, love you, blah, 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 you know, those kinds of things. You recall, you made a decree that everyone who hears the playing of the musical instruments will fall down, worship the golden image, and I can just see the king going, yes, 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 come on, tell me more. And then he says, you'll also recall, good king, that if someone does not do that, you'll have them cast into the burning fire, correct? Oh, yes, yes. Tell me something that I don't know. What's your point? And then they finally get to the point, verse 12. That's when the accusation finally comes in. There are certain Jews, and I want you to listen to what they tell this king. I mean, they're bordering on insurrection right now <laughs> to the king, in, part, in my opinion, even themselves. There are certain Jews that you have set over the affairs of Babylon. These are the Jews that you promoted. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you, nor have they worshipped your golden images, and they do not serve the gods that you serve. And let me remind you, you set them up for this. You put them in power, and now look what they've done. It's almost as if they're just walking this line of letting the king know that they're not doing what you said, but oh, by the way, this is probably your fault. <laughs> so now, what are you going to do? Well, remember, as I said, these are the ones who were embarrassed. Now the Chaldeans are not the ones who are in charge. These three men are in charge, and they don't like it at all. I can just see them doing anything and everything 
to get at these people, and now is my chance. But the accusation that they made was threefold. Number one, these men have no regard for you, O king. Is it possible for them to have complete regard for the king, completely respect the king, yet refuse to bow because of religious conviction? Absolutely. It wasn't the fact that they didn't respect him. It's just that he stepped out of his realm of power and started acting like God when that was, that was not his realm. The worshiping of God is God's realm and not the king. And these men do not serve your gods. Well, that could have been said of any Jew. But in particular, these men do not worship the golden image which you set up. And now it gets real specific. Not all the Jews were there, but these were there. And upon arrival, they learned about something they could not do. And here's the thing. You either have to be insane to disobey the king or you have to be insane to disobey the almighty king, Jehovah God. The first portion, portion is, is probably what's in King Nebuchadnezzar's mind. The second alternative is what's in these three gentlemen's mind. Yeah, you're a king but I serve a higher king. I serve God Almighty. And they knew the latter was worse than the first. And then we can see his anger in verse 13 of chapter 3. He was in rage and anger and gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to him. And then these men were brought before the king. Have you ever seen somebody who was so angry? Their face got red, started shaking, and then you just, you, you're wondering what's going to happen next. <laughs> That's the scene that we're seeing right here. That's how he's reacting to their insurrection. But they come before him in verse 14, and he really starts a cross-examination, and he begins to ask him some questions. First of all, is it true that you do not serve my gods? And secondly, is it true that you do not worship the golden image which I have set up? So now we're at verse 15. And when we get to verse 15, we see that the king seems to pause, and that's when he gives them a second chance to bow down and to worship this image. Because he says, if you are ready to change your mind when you hear the sound of the music playing, you can fall down and worship the image which I have made, and if you do that, everything will be well, But if you do not, then in the same hour, you will be cast into the middle of the burning, fiery furnace. And then he adds this. If you do not worship, you will be immediately cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is that God that shall deliver you out of my hands. I'm the greatest, you know, we hear the greatest show on earth. He's the greatest man on earth. Nobody's more powerful than him. And who can deliver you out of my hands? The problem that he had was he did not truly know the Lord 
the God of the Israelites. He had no genuine knowledge of the Almighty God. His only experience so far that it seems like, at least recorded for us, has to do with the dream that happened in chapter 2. And he was impressed by that. It definitely left, left an impression on him. But it seems that time had just simply gone by. And as time went by, so did his memory of the God of Daniel. And as a result, he didn't really know who God was. But he's about to be introduced to him. He's about to be introduced to him in a way that will catch his attention. And he will learn that the power that he has and the power of any king is only because of God's Almighty's allowance of that to happen to him. Verses 16 through 18. Did you notice how they addressed him? They didn't say, O king of Babylon. It's almost like they called him by his name, O Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> oh, Nebuchadnezzar! <clears throat> Let's talk business. There's no need to answer you in this matter. In other words, they were answerable to God on this issue and this issue alone. Their response was letting him know that he was simply a mere man who was overstepping the bounds that he had, as we mentioned earlier. Worship was in God, Jehovah's realm, not in his. And anything that he ordered had to be examined in terms of the light of what God had said on the matter. And in this matter... God had spoken and had spoken clearly. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. And verse 5 of chapter 20, Exodus. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them right in the chapter of the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20. And if you do, they knew that the Lord was a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. So we, verse 17, if it's the case that you're going to throw us into the furnace, then remember this. You asked, who is the God that will deliver you? Let me tell you who he is. Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. How could they make a statement like that? What have they studied? What were they taught from the time that they was a child? Who created the heavens and the earth? God did. Who delivered their fathers from Egypt? Through miraculous plagues. God did. Who made it possible for the nation to walk across the Red Sea on dry ground? God did. Who closed the Red Sea on the Egyptians who were chasing them and punished them and dealt severe death to them? God did. Who took care of the nation through 40 years of wandering? My God did. Not your gods. Who caused the walls of Jericho to fall? My God, not your God. And we could go on and on. Just biblical history, one-on-one. 
That's what they remembered, and that's why they had the faith. And if God could do all that, was he capable of delivering them from a fiery furnace? Absolutely. The question that they had was, I don't know if he's going to, but I believe that he can. Because even in verse 18, even if he chooses not to, it doesn't matter. Let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. What did they prefer over idolatry? Death. I'm not going to be an idolatrous person. I'm going to choose death. And whether God was willing under those present circumstances to deliver them or not, they had no clue. They knew he could, but they didn't know he would. They had the faith that he, that he could. But even if he didn't, he would never serve his gods or worship his, his image. Now, at this particular time, it might be appropriate to ask or to answer the question that you have. Where's Daniel? Because it's the same question I had. <laughs> and the fact of the matter is the Bible doesn't say. There's not some other book someplace that uh, says Daniel was over here. So it's pure speculation of where he was. Um, I've read all kinds of things about where he was. You know, I mean, pure speculation. Some people said he may have been sick, may have been away on urgent business. He may have been out of the country. Or you could make the case, if you take a look at the seven categories of people that were listed there, being head of the wise men wasn't one of those categories. It could have been that he wasn't even invited. I don't know. It doesn't matter, but it's just interesting. In case you were asking that, my response will be, I don't know. <laughs> he just wasn't there. But these three were, and I'm sure he would eventually hear about it because I know he did because he's writing about it. All right. So now we're down to verses 19 through 23. In these few verses, we're going to see about the decision they made not to bow to the golden image and the danger that was awaiting them. As I mentioned, they would rather face the fiery furnace than to, than to face God Almighty in judgment. That was the clear picture in their mind. It wasn't about saving my skin. It wasn't about what am I going to eat tomorrow. It's how will God view this. And that was the most important thing. And just think, if they gave in this time, how easy would it be to give in next time? Pretty easy. You give in once, makes it easier, easier, easier. So the king was so enraged at their resolve that he ordered the furnace to be heated up seven times normal. And then he ordered, and this is to me so interesting, he ordered the most powerful soldiers from the army to take these Jews and throw them into the mouth of the furnace. So down they went. Incidentally, we're going to see that the soldiers died. But they were okay. And they proved to be, normally I should say, they would have instantly died. But this is not a normal situation in this particular case. But verse 19 says he was full of fury. He was so full of fury that his outward form was said to have changed. These men had defied his commands, and he didn't care about their religious convictions. They report to me. They don't report to God, and I'm the one who's in charge, and you're going to suffer. In essence. And in the king's mind, any form of insubordination could never be tolerated. And so that's when he said... Heat up the furnace. 
It's interesting when you heat up the furnace, it would just simply shorten their, their death. <laughs> it's, if you really wanted to torment them, they're not really going to do that. You know, I would say just put it on medium. <laughs> now, he's like well done and more than well done. And while this may have provided um, more fire for them to give in, hearing that he's going to heat up the ovens, it didn't change their mind whatsoever. But then verse 20, look at verse 20. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They just wasn't anybody. These were mighty warriors. Why would he choose mighty warriors to bind up three men? And I'll tell you, I don't know the answer. But isn't it interesting that the Holy Spirit through Daniel said, these are the people that he chose. I'm made to wonder, what did he think about these people that he had to go choose his most mightiest men to bind them up? Did they have some mystical power that, like they were going to get away? He may have thought that. Remember, he's a poly, polytheistic type individual who believes in all kinds of things, mystical things. Um, maybe he feared that they were going to get away, super strength or something. I don't know. But it's interesting, the mighty men are the ones who were called upon to go get these three men, and they bound them, and they throw them into, their, uh, into the fire. Notice also they were tied up with their trousers, coats, caps, and other clothes. They had their coats, their turbans, their hats, and every other thing on them. They didn't strip them of clothes. They fully clothed them. Most people speculate that's because the more clothes you have, the quicker the fire is, catches the clothes on fire, and just immediately burns. And then they, they, they uh, bound them so that they could not get away, prevent their escape. That's a really nice plan, except Nebuchadnezzar forgot, forgot he was fighting against. He was not just fighting against these three men. He was also fighting against God. And we read in verse 22 and 23 that because the command was urgent, that the furnace was so hot that the flame of the fire killed the mighty man who threw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the furnace. Now, I take this to read that if given the right proper time, maybe that furnace could have been heated up to the point that he wanted to, and it still could have been safe. But no, because of the sense of urgency, something about this caused the death of these three mighty men. But did you notice it did not cause the death of them at the time, the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And there's lots of interesting speculation about what was used on there, and I'm not even going to take time to go into that one, but it's fascinating to think about what had happened there. And then we get back into verse 23, where we talk about the fate of these Hebrews. Uh, even though the mighty men were killed in the course of the event, they were successful in their mission, and that mission was to throw these men into the, into the fire. And the picture comes to my mind of just somebody kind of rolling into the middle of the fire. They're all covered up. But this wasn't going to be. This was execution. It would not have been a pretty picture to have been there, for sure. When I get, by the way, when I see this one, I get flashbacks of the time that I went on an aircraft carrier. My brother was on the Saratoga. And there were, every time uh, carriers, I don't know if they still do it today, but at least in the 70s and 80s they did, where if you're going to go on a six or nine month cruise, generally um, 
they would have a Dependence Day cruise. And so I went down and flew down to Florida, and we went out in the ocean for a day, and we had flight operations and all those kinds of things. So it's fascinating. You know, I was 17 at the time. But I'll never forget going down to the very bottom of the Saratoga, and there was the boiler room right there. And we had to go past the boiler room. You know, and so there goes my brother and his friends ahead of me. And as I started following them, it started getting hotter and hotter and hotter as I approached that boiling room. To the point that when I got near that boiler room, I couldn't breathe. And I just closed my eyes, held my breath, and ran <laughs> as fast as I could. And that's not even a fiery, burning furnace. That's just a boiler room that's outside, behind the doors of where the boilers really are. But in the next three verses, God is going to deliver these people. And that's when we see this amazing sight. Um, these guys are fully clothed. He looks into the, to the kennel, to the furnace, and he sees these men who are fully clothed. They're not dead. They're walking around. Something is going on. And to confirm his own sanity, he asked for assurance of those people that are around him. Did we not cast three men into this furnace? And they go, true, O king. And then he says, look, I see four men now, and they're loose, walking around in the middle of the fire, and they're not injured in any way, and the appearance of the fourth is like a heavenly being. In modern times, people like firemen wear suits into burning buildings, but there's one thing that a suit will not do. If you lose your mask, what happens to the lungs? They're almost smoked. A friend of ours at church in Memphis experienced that. He was a firefighter. Matter, matter of fact, it was uh, um, Cheryl Spence's brother. You've met him. He's been here. Sidney Gray. He, he survived, but he went on and had a long career with firefighters. But he was fighting this fire. He had just completed training. He was brand new on the job now, within a few months. And something in the, this building hit his mask, and the mask came off. And when it did, it just smoked his lungs. And we're sitting there watching TV, and they talk about a firefighter being injured that day. And we see him literally on the, 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 the gurney being rolled out to the ambulance. And we're like, what happened? And then, of course, you know, we found out. Fire is dangerous. This is not messing around. This is serious. This is business. But they were protected by God. And that's the point. In verse 26, he calls out, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I want you to come out. Now, he, unlike the mighty men, did not suffer anything at the time. I don't know if that was God protecting him to teach him or it was just, you know, the, the situation at the time had boiled down to the point that it wasn't a danger for him to go where these mighty men were. But notice he did not say, come out of here, please. <laughs> but he should have. He knew he was in trouble. You just don't do what I just did and find three and four men walking around. Something is going on, and I'm being taught a lesson. And so he brings them out. He, as we, as we say here a little bit later on, 
the God delivers them, and then verses 28 and 29, he glorifies God. And note that the things he says, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they were the ones that told him that God could deliver him in verse 17. God sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. This is the words of Nebuchadnezzar. What a blessing to say. God changed the king's word and frustrated the king's word. No doubt, this was hard for a stubborn, prideful king to even admit. And he yielded, you yielded their bodies that you should not serve nor worship any god except your own god because, the fifth thing, there is no other god who can deliver like this. And as a result of this, the three Hebrews were promoted to even higher position, and he made a decree. And then I think it's important to note on this one. Then he made a decree that any person, nation, or language who speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and you know what's going to happen. What's going to happen? They're going to be standard, yeah, standard form of punishment. Limbs are going to be torn off, and our house is going to be torn down. <laughs> it's his favorite go-to thing, all right? But it's important to note this. This decree basically made it so that Judaism was to be treated as a recognized religion in Babylon. It was not a proclamation that the national religion would be Judaism, but Judaism would be protected. And I wonder if that's part of God's providence providing for his people who are in captivity for 70 years. What lessons can we learn? Well, we can learn the lesson that Daniel talked about the other day. God will always walk us, walk with us through the fiery trials of life. He's just not observing. He'll be there with us. And I think we also learn another lesson that God can deliver us from temptation and sin if we trust in him. Notice I said God can deliver us. Verse 17, remember they said, I don't care who you think you are. My God can deliver us. He's able to deliver us, and he will deliver us. But even if he doesn't, let it be known, we don't serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you've set up. We need to always think about how God has delivered people, not only from the Old Testament only, but also the New Testament. That God delivered Peter by an angel, Acts chapter 12, when he was arrested. Paul prayed that he would be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. And he even said in 2 Timothy chapter 4 that the Lord delivered him out of the mouth of the lion. God will always, will, and I should say this, will God always remove danger and death from us? No, we're not promised that. But he are, he, we are promised that he will always be with us. Is he capable of doing that? Absolutely. Does he always do that? No. And in the end, we have to trust him just like these three men did in verse 18. But I would say the most important delivery that we know God does and will perform is delivering us from temptation and the bondage of sin. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man, but God is faithful, who will now not allow you to be tempted what you're able, but with the temptation will also provide the way of escape. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us or translated us into the kingdom of his dear son. In verse 14, in whom there is redemption through his blood, 
the very forgiveness of sins. So God is a deliverer. He's always been a deliverer, sometimes in a physical sense, but definitely in a spiritual sense. And to do that, we have to obey his commands and we have to express our faith in him. Everything we do is by faith. God, as I've said before, God is not going to send a FedEx package saying, look, now that you have obeyed the gospel, your name is written in the book of life and here's proof of it. You got your FedEx package with your certificate. That's not happening. It's by faith. And that's exactly the same faith that he had. Number three, we need the courage to say we will not. No matter the situation, no matter the temptation, we will always have to come back and have courage and say, no, whatever the thing is, whatever the person is, we will not give in. And finally, I think Nebuchadnezzar teaches us a lesson. That controlling our anger is critical. His anger got the best of him. Herod's got the best of him when he killed all the kids in Bethlehem once he heard about the birth of Jesus. But anger is something that we have to get a hold of. It will do, it will do hard things to us. Proverbs 29, verse 22, An angry man stirs up strife. A furious man abounds in transgression. Do not, be, do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. And we can see the foolish acts of this king and other kings and other powerful men and even our own selves when we get angry. Be angry, but do not sin. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. Thank you.